All right, today for our Sunday School biography, we're going to look at a man named Adoniram Judson. Adoniram Judson was, he's billed as the first American foreign missionary. And that could be true. There were some uh, Americans, certainly the British, that were going uh, ahead of him. But uh, to Burma, there may have been a few people who hit the ground just before him. He's usually known as the first missionary to Burma, which is today's Myanmar. And, and so we, he, he often gets, uh, gets credit for the first because he had the most impact. And so we'll see that as we go through his life. few introductory comments on, on missions and the hard work that Adoniram Judson was called to. Very difficult work. This was frontline missionary work. This was going into a region where there was no gospel uh, for thousands of miles surrounding him. There were no Christians. It was a Buddhist uh, territory in Myanmar. India was mostly Hindu. And, uh, but Myanmar was, uh, or Burma, was Buddhist. And, and so we think, after, you know, after we go through a bit of his life, um, you'll be amazed at the faith that he exercised under very difficult circumstances. Brings to mind a few scriptures. Uh, when Paul says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is, the church. That is what Adoniram Judson did and his three wives that he had, not simultaneously. Um, and I also think of the end of Hebrews 11, where it says of the faithful, they were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. Uh, that was a part of Adoniram Judson's calling and work was to live that kind of life, and he did so because he wanted those people in Burma to know Jesus Christ and be saved. Is there still frontline work like this to do? Certainly. There are still unreached tribes. There are still very difficult and hostile environments to go into. Uh, you know, go preach um, at Times Square in New York City. You might feel some of the heat that uh, Adoniram Judson uh, felt in, in Burma. We just have to turn off, be willing to turn off our TVs and do this kind of work. So he was born, Adoniram Judson was born in 1788. His father was a Calvinist congregational pastor in New England in Massachusetts. So 1788, that was what, the year before the Constitution is ratified, 1789? 
Uh, we know our history so well. That's the declaration, but the Constitution was 1789. I think so. Where's Chuck when we need him? Uh, Adoniram Judson was a precocious child. What does precocious mean? Does anybody know, or is anybody here precocious? What's a good definition of precocious, Sarah? Yeah, yeah, early to maturity, and uh, so that doesn't describe any of my children. <laughs> or, most or most Americans, yeah. His mother, listen to this, his mother taught him to read in one week when he was three to surprise his father when he came home from a trip. <laughs> so there you go, that's... That's the intelligence of this man and the precociousness of this guy. So he was really great at figuring out puzzles as well, which may have helped him in his, his travels and missionary work, I'm sure. Now, skipping forward, he went to college and had your typical college experience. It is not just today where college kids go to college and forsake the faith. Um, if they are not grounded. He, was, he did the same thing. A friend of his, Jacob Eames, was a bad dude. He was a good friend of his, led him astray. He was a deist, and he, he pushed Adoniram in that direction of deism. I mean, remember, his father is a Calvinist congregational pastor in New England. That's what, he's been, that's what he was raised in, that kind of home. And this deist comes along, and deism, you know, at that point in the American experience is, is like the Pharisees during Jesus' time, right? It's very popular. Deism is everything. And the, the, everybody who has power are deists. There are very few Christians that are leading the country at that point. John Witherspoon um, was a sea of Christianity, or a, was an island of Christianity in the midst of a sea of deism. So he goes, uh, he goes to college and gets together with his friend Jacob Eames. It was highly influenced him. Influenced, he rejected the faith of his father, and as would be typical today, he told his parents he had no faith and decided now to go to New York and be a playwright. <laughs> Oh man, the deist dream, right? He's going to go to New York, he's going to be a playwright, he is going to dedicate his life to the theater uh, where profound thoughts and artwork can be his focus. Uh, he went and lived the bohemian lifestyle and honestly he hated it. He did not like it. He decided to humble himself and return home. Okay, so he goes off to New York, he lives as a bohemian, he gets, he gets involved in, in, uh, in you know, the theater, doesn't like it, and like the prodigal son, in a sense, he returns home, and on his way home, an extraordinary thing happened. This is really kind of mind-boggling. And I got to read from this book. It's called To the Golden Shore. It's the life of Adoniram Judson by Courtney 
Anderson and Courtney Anderson. He was a uh, teacher and film writer, ironically enough. So, um, listen to this. As night, so this is on his way back home to his parents to humble himself. As night drew on, he found himself passing through a small village. Finding the local inn, he stabled his horse and asked the innkeeper for a room. The house was nearly full and said the landlord apologetically, but he had one next to a young man who was critically ill, perhaps dying. He might be disturbed, but no, said Adoniram, still wrapped in his own thoughts. He would not let a few noises next door deny him a night's rest. After giving him something to eat, the landlord lighted Adoniram to his room and left him. Without further ado, Adoniram got into bed and waited for sleep to come. But though the night was still, he could not sleep. In the next room beyond the partition, he could hear sounds, not very loud, footsteps coming and going, a board creaking, low voices, a groan or gasp. These did not disturb him unduly, not even the realization that a man might be dying. Death was a commonplace in Adoniram's New England. It might come to anyone at any age. What disturbed him was the thought that the man in the next room might not be prepared for death. Was he himself? A confusing coil of speculation unwound itself as he lay half dreaming, half waking, while the autumn chill stole down from the mountains and crept through every crack and cranny of the house. He wondered how he himself would face death. His father would welcome it as a door opening outward to immortal glory. So much his creed had done for him. But to add an Iram, the son, the free thinker, the deist, the infidel, lying huddled under the covers, death was an exit, not an entrance. It was a door to an empty pit, to darkness darker than night, at best to extinction, at worst to what? On this matter, his philosophy was silent. It had no answer, but who knows? He had always been neat and well-groomed. His mother had taught him to be fastidious. He cared for his own person, but he must die, and the grave was a cold, dark place. His flesh crawled. Was the wet, earthy mold in the motionless body, the slow dissolution of muscle and tendon, the slower crumbling of bone, the immense weight of soil, was this all through the endless centuries? What of that part of Adoniram Judson he thought of as I? Did it go out like a flame of a candle? Or did it, too, stay in the ground with the flesh? There was terror in these fantastical, unwinding ideas, but as they presented themselves, another part of himself jeered. Midnight fancies, that part said scornfully. What a skin-deep thing, this free-thinking philosophy of Adoniram Judson, valedictorian scholar, teacher, ambitious man must be, what would the classmates at Brown say to these terrors of the night who thought of him as bold in thought? Above all, what would Eames say? Eames, the clear-headed, skeptical, witty, talented, he imagined Eames' laughter and felt shame. When Adoniram woke, the sun was streaming in the window. His apprehensions had vanished with the darkness. He could hardly believe he had given in to such weakness. He dressed quickly and ran downstairs looking for the innkeeper. It was past time to have breakfast, pay his reckoning, saddle his horse, and be on his way. He found his host, asked for the bill, and perhaps noticing the man 
somber-faced, asked casually whether the young man in the next room was dead, was better. He's dead, was the answer. Dead. Adoniram was taken back. There was a heavy finality to the word. For an instant, some of his fear of the night made itself felt once more. Adoniram stammered out the few conventional phrases common to humanity when death takes someone nearby and asked the inevitable question, do you know who he was? Oh yes, young man from the college in Providence. Name was Eames, Jacob Eames. His friend, his friend who had led him astray. Right, his friend who had led him away from the gospel and into deism and into the bohemian lifestyle. It was he he heard gasping and groaning all night and dying. Um, let me read just a little bit more of this. How he got through the next few hours, Adoniram was never able to remember. All he recalled afterwards was that he did not try to leave the inn until some hours had passed. Whether he looked on Eames' body, whether he made himself known as Eames' friend, whether any of Eames' relatives or family were in the village, whether he wept, on all this he was always silent. Later, however, he found himself on the road, continuing his journey without being sure how he came to be there. He was aware that one word was tolling in his mind like a bell, the word lost. Lost. In death, Jacob Eames was lost. Utterly, irrevocably lost, lost to his friends, to the world, to the future, lost as a puff of smoke is lost in the infinity of air. If Eames' own views were true, neither his life nor his death had any meaning. The coincidence of his dying on the other side of a partition from Adoniram in a remote country inn was simply a meaningless incident in a plan too huge and impersonal to take account of individuals. But suppose Eames had been mistaken. Suppose the scriptures were literally true and a personal God real. Then Jacob Eames was already lost in a most desperate sense. For already this moment Eames knew his error, too late for repentance. Knowing his mistake, regretting it with a bitterness which no living human could ever possibly imagine, he was experiencing already the unimaginable torments of the flames of hell. Any chance of remedy, of going back, of correcting, lost, eternally lost. Thus the pattern in Adoniram's shocked mind, it was the night thoughts back again, but in a more dreadful form. The road was an ordinary country road, barely more than a trail, dusty and warm in the September sun. The horse ambled quietly, almost unguided, the saddle leather squeaking as always. But there was an indefinable menace everywhere. Even the flaming reds against the thick evergreens on the hillside suggested hungry tongues of hell's flame licking through the forest cover from under the granite beneath. For that hell should open in that country inn and snatch Jacob Eames, his dearest friend and guide, from the next bed. This could not, simply could not be pure coincidence. Adoniram knew his father's God very well. He was omniscient. He knew everything. He was omnipotent. He had all power. He could foresee where Adoniram would be that night, could foresee his leaving New York when and why he did. He could foresee that Jacob Eames would be where he was, fall sick, die, and be damned. More, being all-powerful, this 
he must have done with a purpose, for he could have arranged matters otherwise. This is a very compelling section of that biography, a very compelling experience that Adoniram Judson went through. Um, some of you may have been converted through tragedy like that, but I think that was the point of, of Adoniram's conversion. It was too much for him just to sweep it under the rug as coincidence, right? Especially after having been taught by his father that there is a God in heaven who arranges all the matters of men. And so that's when, when he came to faith. He, um, he very shortly after this time, he went home, he humbled himself before his parents, and uh, he very quickly became uh, a student at a new seminary to train for ministry. He decided to serve God, believed it was best for him to serve as a missionary, to give his life to God in that sense, to go where there were scores of people who were dying and meeting God in judgment. He read a book called Sims, uh, by Sims, an account of an embassy to the kingdom of Ava. Ava will crop up later. Ava was in the middle of Burma and... Um, was uh, the capital, in a sense, of Burma. It painted, this book painted Burma in a good light, though everyone else was saying that Burma would be hostile to the gospel. And so that, that book was what got, him in, got Burma in his mind as the place that he should go. There were no missionary societies in America at this point like there were in England, none. Uh, that hadn't started up yet. The first missionary society would start up with Adoniram Judson's efforts and getting behind him. And so he, some other interested men talked and various ministers, and they set up the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions. On, um, <clears throat> on the last meeting before, when they decided to send Adoniram over to Burma, um, of course, Adoniram met a girl last meeting, right? This is two weeks before he's to set sail. He meets a girl. Um, she, her name is Nancy, or it's Anne. I've seen it two different ways. Uh, Hazeltine. Nancy Hazeltine. To Nancy's father, Adoniram wrote a quick letter. He said this, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life. Whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you Consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you. For the sake of perishing immortal souls. For the sake of Zion and the glory of God. So he writes to her father, asking her hand in marriage, but asking in an in a extraordinary situation where it, he knew I mean, at least he was sobered up enough to know that this was not going to be an easy life. This was going to be hardship. This was going to be very 
very difficult and that she would likely die in this pursuit as she eventually did. Finally, in February of 1812, they set sail on board the American trading ship, the Caravan. Next stop, India. They reach India in June. Leave February, reach India in June. They can't just hop on a plane and 36 hours later, they're anywhere in the world. Uh, This was a six-month trip that they took, or five-month trip, on boats that bobbed around like corks on the seas. So uh, already thrust into the difficulties of the missionary life, just trying to get to the land you want to go to. While on the boats, Adoniram Judson, by the influence of other missionaries, became a convicted Baptist, rejecting infant baptism. Um, and would remain a Baptist the rest of his life. So one of the few, one of the few, the proud, who go from infant baptism to believer baptism. But that happened to him. I mean, there must have been, he was, he was the only Congregationalist on that boat probably, and, and there were a bunch of Baptists, and they ganged up on him and browbeat him. So he converted they bounced around in, they got to India, they bounced around in India for a while. They had to go to India because you, can, you couldn't just go to Burma. I mean, you had to like, it was locked off. You would have to go in clandestinely. And so they, they got to Indiana, in, Indiana. They got to India, bounced around a little bit there. And then Adoniram said this, About that time, the grim, unromantic reality of the task they had taken was beginning to reveal itself. At Andover and in Salem, they had talked about difficulties and dangers and probably martyrdom, but their departure had been, in a certain sense, almost festive, surrounded as it had been by the atmosphere of drama which always envelops the first volunteers at the start of a long war, before the big battles and the long casualty lists. Now had occurred the first skirmishes and the first casualties, It had not turned out the way they had expected. It was hard to see the glory. Now, this is uh, this author describing this time period. It was hard to see the glory in such deaths as, as they had expected. It was hard to see the glory in such deaths as Harriet's and her babies, right? While they had traveled and early in the time, her best friend and her first child died. The first child was stillborn. Um and Hazeltines. Here they were, four of them, a full year after leaving Salem on an island where none of them had ever intended to go. There were three Baptists and one Congregationalist who had begun as four Congregationalists. Well, that's interesting. Okay, so (laughs) divine intervention there. They had given up hope of going to their original destination, Burma. The East India Company seemed intent on hounding them out of any other possible place. And always and always again, their thoughts reverted to Harriet, the youngest of them all. The accident of contrary winds, a leaky ship drenched in a storm at sea, a cold pneumonia, tuberculosis. Where was the providence of God in this mean, unfair, sneaky, even vindictive attack on a young mother and her newborn baby? The author asks. Sort of um, anticipating the frustrations that they may uh, have felt. 
everything was just incredibly difficult. There was nothing easy about this. I mean, just to think about where are they going to get food, right? Let alone the difficulty of travel. There's so much that we take for granted. Thankful for the technology that um, we have. Very thankful for it because this was miserable. And yet that didn't stop them. They still went, even though it was going to be difficult, right? We, we wouldn't want to go because it, we would have to give up our 401k. <laughs> oh, man. Eventually, they make it to Rangoon, Burma, against everybody's judgment. Everybody is telling them, don't go. Don't go. You're going to die if you go there. Don't go. Nancy, his wife, wrote, the poor Burmans are entirely destitute of those consolations and joy which constitute our happiness. And why should we be willing to part with a few fleeting, inconsiderable comforts for the sake of making them shares with us in joys exalted as heaven, durable as eternity? We cannot expect to do much in such a rough, uncultivated field, yet if we may be instrumental in removing some of the rubbish and preparing the way for others, it will be a sufficient reward. I've been accustomed to view this field of labor with dread and terror, but I now feel perfectly willing to make it my home the rest of my life. So she's coming to terms with this. The Lord is working in her and sanctifying her for this ministry. While traveling to Rangoon, Nancy gave birth to a stillborn boy. He was buried at sea. No physicians, no attendants, just her husband there to bury their child. The work of learning the language began, and Adoniram Judson would begin something that he would work on for the rest of his life, which was the Burmese Bible, and a dictionary for other missionaries to use to learn the language. That dictionary is still in use. Uh, it was excellent work. It was quality. It's still in use. And so he begins translating the Bible into Burmese, following the great Protestant Reformed tradition of getting the Bible into the language of the people. They worked to share the gospel. The people had a religion already. Before they could accept a new one, they had to reject the old one. When politely told their minds were stiff, oh, when Adoniram told the men about Jesus' atonement for their sins, they replied politely that their minds were stiff, that they, their minds were set up. They weren't going to do that. When Nancy spoke to the women, they said, Your religion is good for you, ours for us. You will be rewarded for your good deed in your way, we in our way. It's a very postmodern sort of mindset. It's a very Hindu-Buddhist mindset as well. Um, it's a polytheistic mindset. They had another child who died before the age of one. So they've buried three children at this point, their first three. Uh, fearful even to have a public service, they don't have one for the first four years of their time in, in Rangoon, in Burma. They don't have a public worship service four years. Um, <clears throat> the first public meeting was attended by 15 people in April 1819. In May the following month, six years after they had arrived, they had their first convert, Mong Na. He professed faith in Jesus and was baptized. 
Six years in, first convert. By 1822, which would be 12 years after they originally left, there were 18 believers, and he finishes his New Testament in 1823. So they have the New Testament in their hands. The Word of God can be read. Um, Things like what I'm going to describe from this book, things like this were happening all the time, causing both to be out of commission for months at a time, right? Sicknesses would come along, and you couldn't go to the doctor and get antibiotics. You suffered through illnesses, right, and, and prayed that God would, would heal. And so you would be, you would be and, and if you had to travel, you, would be, you wouldn't hear from one another for six, seven, eight months, right? You'd get sick, and you, you would be in your room for two months recovering from illness that just annihilated your body. And here, Nancy's health had been failing. She suffered intense pain from what seemed to be liver trouble. Two grueling courses of salivation did not help. Have no idea what that is, but I don't want to experience it. Um, and by late June, Adoniram realized that she would have to, uh, that, that he would have to seek medical help for her in Bengal. Since he was doubtful whether she could survive the voyage alone, this time he felt that he would have to go with her. Um, That was just, that was all the time. You know, um, getting sick, 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 sicker, sicker. Okay, we need to travel, and it's a two-month. You're leaving the home for two months. Nancy ran a school. She tried to teach uh, the children. Um, Adoniram continued to translate. Jump forward to 1824. In 1824, the British move on Burma. The British uh, colonialists, right? They move on Burma. And so all foreigners are then suspected to be spies. Any foreigners in the land of Burma by the Burmese government is suspected to be a spy. Adoniram was then imprisoned for um, around 18 months at the infamous death prison of Ava. So he goes to the capital. He's in the death prison. He's being tortured. 18 months. He would be suspended by his feet with only his head and shoulders touching the ground. Four days. Um, Sparingly fed, uh, miserable conditions. Um, all through this, when he was in prison, the New Testament was hidden and God preserved it. If the New Testament had been located, and it's not like he has a hard drive and a backup to the cloud. Right? He's got one copy of this thing. And it's hidden and it, it survives makes it through this. That is, that is a gift from God and would have encouraged him. It was not until the end of 1825 that he was freed. Um, there was a separation between he and his wife. He had learned that his, his little daughter was deathly ill. He received a letter. Okay, so he's off traveling. He's doing some ministry. He receives a letter expecting to hear of her death, but the, wife, but the letter told him of his wife's death. 
right? So he had left, the daughter got sick, he heard about that, he expected to get a letter that she had died, but he got a letter that his wife had died. And then six months later, that daughter died. So he's experienced the death of four of his children and his wife at this point. And he has 15, 18 converts in his little church. He then fell into a deep depression. He began to doubt his calling. He began to doubt his ministry. He began to suspect, this is from the book, he began to suspect that his real motive in becoming a missionary had been not genuine humility and self-abnegation, but ambition. Ambition to be the first American foreign missionary. The first missionary to Burma. The first translator of the Bible into Burmese. First in his own eyes, in the eyes of man. He had a lust to excel. That was why he enjoyed the company of important men, ambassadors, generals, such as Crawford and Sir Archibald Campbell. He knew they like, liked and admired him, and their liking and adm admiration were like head wine. In their company, he glowed and his wit flashed sparks like fire. He had always known that his forwardness, self-pride, and desire to stand out were serious flaws in his nature. They made his entire missionary career up to now a kind of monstrous hypocrisy a method of securing prominence and praise without admitting it to himself. He had deluded himself, but he had not deluded God. Perhaps here was the intention in all these deaths to teach him humility. <clears throat> and so all that he suffered, all the things that we suffer, all the things that we suffer uh, arbitrary. Do they have purpose? Do our sufferings have purpose? Whatever they may be, from big to little, from a cold and a stuffy nose to the loss of life, right? It all has purpose. God orders these things for our good, right? And to teach us and to build us up. And here's Adoniram Judson having gone with this ambition in his heart, wanting to be first, 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 and what God does first is just take everything away from him. He breaks him down and breaks him down and breaks him down and breaks him down and makes him sick and makes him uh, not be able to get to where he is and work very hard and not, not see much fruit in his ministry. And yet it's God at work in him, making him into a more sympathetic man. It was not until 1831, right, 1831, in 1822, which was 12 years in, he had 18 believers. It's not until 1831, another nine years, where he sees significant fruit from his labors. Spirit at that point seemed to be poured out. Well, he has a second wife. There is a wife of a missionary who died, right? A missionary that's over there in Burma with them, and the, the husband die, dies, and um, the, the wife, the widow, marries Adoniram in 1834. She got very sick, and they decided to sail for America, and she died on the trip. 
She was buried at sea. For a few days, writes Adoniram, in the solitude of my cabin, with my poor children crying around me, I could not help abandoning myself to heartbreaking sorrow. But the promise of the gospel came to my, my aid. And faith stretched her view to the, to, bring, uh, to the brink of eternal life. And, and, and I anticipated a happy meeting with those beloved beings whose bodies are moldering at Amherst and St. Helena. That's where his two wives were buried. He gets back to America in 1845, and he could not stand to be home at this point. Came back to America expecting some, I mean, he, he, expecting to use his experience to build up missions and to do the work of ministry. He could not stand it. He was treated as a celebrity and fawned over. And so he got out of Dodge as quickly as he could. He left. He said, this is no good for me. He's just been beaten down by God and disciplined for his ambition. Now to go back and be treated like a hero, he, he would not have. And so he leaves. Um, they, um, once again, um, he receives, he receives uh, a letter that his, his little son Charlie had died back in Burma, who had not come with him. So another child's death that he experienced. And then he finds a third wife, happiest years of his life, he said. He was 29 and she, or she was 29, he was 57. She was a famous writer and left her fame and writing career to go with Judson to Burma. Um, they seemed like an incompatible couple. I mean, she was, she was a famous author writing sort of pop novels of the time. Um, but a Christian, and, and here he's this now seasoned, uh, seasoned missionary. And, um, and they get married and go back, arrive back in Burma in 1846, and again, there's good fruit that comes through their efforts. April 12th, 1850, Adoniram de departs this life to be with the Lord. He was at sea uh, when he died, um, having seen uh, good fruit come. He had seen many conversions, the efforts, uh, you know, um, increasing in the Burmese area. And, <clears throat> and now he's traveling about, probably going from one place to uh, to minister to another, and he dies on board. And this is his burial. The crew assembled quietly. The larboard port was opened. There were no prayers. The captain gave the order. The coffin slid through the port into the night. The location was latitude 13 degrees north, longitude 93 degrees east. Almost in the eastward shadow of the Adaman Islands, and only a few hundred miles west of the mountains of Burma. The Aristide Marie sailed on toward the Isle of France. So, a humble burial, right? Put in a box, sent out without even a prayer. His work's over here. Ten days later, Adoniram's wife gave birth to their second child who uh, died at birth. 
she learned four months later that her husband was dead. She learned four months later that her husband was dead. Uh, She returned to New England that next January and died of tuberculosis three years later at the age of 37. Um, By this time, the Bible, the entire Bible had been translated. The Bible was done. The dictionary was also done. And so having left those two things behind, what a huge help that would have been to any other missionary that came along to do work after him. And good products that they made. Hundreds of converts were now leading the churches. Today, there are 3,700 congregation of Baptists in Myanmar who trace their origins to the work of Adoniram Judson. 3,700 churches. Right, that is a lot, and that is a lot to influence that area. And so, though there is persecution in that area, there's still the Buddhists and the Hindus who want to do damage and conflict with the Christians. It is an intense period. There is still a Christian witness in that nation because of, of Adoniram Judson's work. And what fruit, most of which he didn't get to see, but the Lord spent a lot of time, a lot of his life, just breaking down his sins. That was the beginning part of his missionary work, was just for God to make him usable and break down his sins. So so when when you're a hotshot young man and you think God has given you this calling and, and this vocation and you think you have the gifts for it, and you launch off into that, and it's failure after failure after failure after difficulty after uh, loss after loss. Don't forget that God may still call you to that task, but he's making you fit for that task. Usually we say, oh, forget it, you know. I mean, why didn't Adoniram just say, oh, forget it? I've labored for six years here and have one convert. How, how is this profitable? Um, but that is, that is the way the Lord works. He um, has regard for us and desires for us to be conformed to the image of his son. And, and some of us need, uh, need the crucible. Did I say some of us? I mean, some people, it seems like they're born sanctified fully. But they're just faking it really well, right? We really all need to be put through the crucible of suffering so that we may uh, cling to God, depend upon him, and be useful for his kingdom, right? We will follow in the same path that Jesus went, which was to suffer, right? to suffer, and that's what his children will do. And so don't get, uh, yeah, cry out to the Lord, express all your frustrations to him during that time. Really, really plead with him, but also have in the back of your mind that God is making of you something. If you don't resist him, right? If you don't resent him, if you don't become bitter toward him and throw him off, well, then you can take whatever comes and say, okay, God, use this for your glory. Make me into some uh, man that uh, 
has left behind his childhood sins and moved on into maturity. But boy, it's painful. Lord, it's very painful. Um, <clears throat> Hebrews 12, right? He scourges the sons he loves. So let's pray. Father, thank you for the examples we have of, of your work in history, of the way that you worked through men and women, and you worked in them so that they could do work for you. You made them fit vessels for your spirit, and then the spirit came forth from them to bless others. Lord, we pray that you would work in us to leave behind this, the silliness and the immaturity of our childhood and use us to, for the building of your kingdom. Father, it's vomitous how much we think about our own kingdoms and how we want to be first, 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 first. Father, I pray that we would be, through our sufferings, made able to think about your kingdom first. May your glory be demonstrated through our efforts. May Christ be seen in our weakness. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.